Real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is the 25th of June, 2020. And uh, we're pretty much in uh, more of a celebratory mode, celebratory mode, shall I say? Uh, only because, because the radio is not being my friend today. I think that. But um, only because... Uh, we have had some, f- mm, I want to say some minor victories, minor victories in the sense that uh, we have uh, had some movement in regards to the um, global issues that we've been having as per North Korea. Uh, obviously, this isn't public knowledge yet, but there have been some discussions that have gone uh, to into the right direction. Uh, as far as Iran, uh, we see Europe is actually very upset uh, with the motions that are happening there. Uh, in addition, and I'm telling you the stuff that's been that's for me is making it exceptional. Uh, you know, the NSA is starting to. Um, get a little bit of a house clean. I am hoping that I will see the house clean extend to the IG of the NSA, but that uh, time will tell on that one. So in other news, uh, General Flynn, finally yesterday, the judges came back with a 2-1 that uh, the judge, Emmett, uh, he needs to sign it off and leave it alone. Just there's nothing there. This was a perversion of justice from day one. And um, that hasn't been signed yet from what I uh, know. Though obviously I was outside of the loop yesterday because I found myself from 7 p.m. till about 2 a.m. at the vet, which I can say was the most horrific experience anyone can go through uh, at a time of coronavirus because everything's no contact. And by no contact, I mean they're not even updating. Uh, So I got to hang out in a parking lot watching um, some (laughs) Korean shows uh, to pass the time. Um, losing my mind and obviously my wallet. I think everybody needs to be a vet. They can charge you anything they want. Uh, they, <laughs> it was just unexpected, but what can you do? Right. Um, so here we are with, um, advancements being made, um, throughout our nation, um, in respects to our freedoms. Now, where am I going with this? You know, it is known that power is shown by being able to take someone or something apart and then putting it back together the way you want to. You have power over Legos because you can take them apart and then create whatever you want. And then that, whatever you made, let's pretend a building, you have the power to dismantle it and put it back together. This is what we are seeing the left do to the people in the United States of America. They are literally breaking down people in this nation and breaking down the reality. And reality, just so you know, exists in your own mind. It's personalized. Uh, Yes, we have shared overlap, but it is personalized. So, They are using their power of influence and to bombard you with what they have to say 
to take that reality that exists in your mind and reshape it as they want. That's the thing. That is exactly what we are seeing. Pretty interesting, right? We're seeing modern day book burning happening, but we all know that the best book is the one that's going to tell you what you already know, right? Because that's the one you like. Oh, that validates me. Never ever do you want to have a book that tells you things you don't know. No. Do you see what I'm saying? And this is where they're banking on it. Because, you know, they have that paintbrush. They own it right now. They own it. Globally, they own it. They have this paintbrush where they're wiping out our past in order for them to be able to Picasso our future in their eyes, in their way, in their image. It is, we are at a place where it's do or die. And when we say that these elections are unlike others, it it is a real thing. It is a very real thing. Hmm. It feels like everyone's stupid, right? I mean, stupidity is necessary for them to actually do what they do to us. Everything they do to us is based on stupidity. It's almost imperative that it exists. You know? And they have the media, right? They have the books. They have the teachers. To which the lies that the Democrats and some Republicans um, put forward to us are repeated so many times. And so well revoiced that this lie is passed on to you in various means from uh, social media to the news, to your newspaper, to the books, through your children, through anything and its mother. They bring it to you. And that is how a lie becomes truth. By making sure that it is pounded day and night. Lies, lies, lies. That is all it is. And all of us know it. Here's a liar who was on the Steve Colbert show. John Bolton. He must be running scared. Because now that we're holding trials for Almazote, maybe we can throw him into the mix. I mean, huh. We want justice, right? We got the Nazis, right? We had the Nuremberg trials. We're not going to have trials for that massacre that John Bolton put together. Why not? Why not? Put your values where your mouth is. You claim that you're against genocide. You claim that you're against killing people, communism. Aren't you Democrats? Well, then make it known. Take a listen to what John had to say about President Trump and what he doesn't know in respect to Ukraine. John Bolton, author of The Rumor It Happened. 
Um, now, let's talk about uh, Ukraine impeachment and your decision uh, not to testify, or rather your, your, your belief that it was not uh, necessary for you to testify. Um, the big question six months ago was, did anyone see Trump explicitly tie military aid to Ukraine uh, to the Biden investigations? Everyone was saying, like, if there was anyone out there, Republican senators, Lindsey Graham and other people saying, gosh, if there was somebody in the room who could tell us that that happened, this would be a different story. How did it feel to know that you were that person while everyone was asking that question? Look, I think I think the impeachment effort went into a ditch long before that point. I think the way the House Democrats structured it, they were looking for a partisan fight. They pushed Republicans who might have been willing in the tradition of Watergate of Sam Irvin and Howard Baker might have been willing to look at the bigger picture. Uh, they pushed them away. They created a party line vote in the House and they guaranteed a party line vote essentially in the Senate. So this this was a huge strategic failure uh, by the Democrats. Uh, and uh, and I think and I believe then and I believe now that whether I had testified in the House or the Senate because of the nature of the proceedings, it would have been swept aside. It would have been ignored. It would not have made any difference. And what I did have to say would have been buried. But my question was, knowing that that's what people were looking for, like so much ink was spilled over, did anyone actually, could anyone tie Trump specifically saying this tit for tat, and knowing you were that person, what was that like to sit on that information and not share it? Well, I felt that the best thing to do at that point was to make sure that the real judges of presidential performance, who are, after all, the American people, should hear it. I thought this impeachment effort was doomed almost from the start. I think it was just based on a, a huge miscalculation. Uh, and, and what's the miscalculation? The, the miscalculation that they could uh, take a very narrow subject and ram it through quickly, uh, which turned out to be exactly Donald Trump's strategy. He wanted a very narrow trial in the Senate, rammed mm -hmm. through quickly, and that's what he got. So, so, but that, do you believe that that actual narrow subject was an impeachable offense? Because you told USA Today that as a senator, you would have voted to convict. I probably would have, although, again, I still don't think that, uh, I certainly don't believe I know everything that was going on in Ukraine or that, frankly, still may be going on in Ukraine at the behest of the president. Do you if think that if you learned more, it would be great stuff or bad stuff? Like, oh, take a guess. Bad stuff. What, what, what we don't know will hurt us. Okay. So I guess my question is that because it was prosecuted poorly, in your opinion, and too narrowly, isn't that like someone saying, I happen to know that this guy murdered a lot of people, but because they're not prosecuting him as a serial killer, I don't want to testify in this one murder that they found. Now, let, let me be clear about what the problem was. It's, it wasn't simply the scope. It was the way the House Democrats treated House Republicans. I believe that there were some substantial number who would have been open to a fair consideration of a range of issues. That was never part of the Democratic plan. So that many Republicans who were no fans of Donald Trump ended up in the position of defending him. Now you can you can argue about whether that was right or wrong, but that's the fact. You know it's the fact. You saw So you think that the Republicans would have been open to other charges or other other investigations, even though everything they did was to stymie the investigations. We have historical evidence about how an impeachment process can work called Watergate, where Democrats worked with Republicans and where the key people who eventually forced Nixon out 
were Republicans. Jim Buckley of New York, elected on the conservative party line, mm -hmm. was the first Republican to call for Richard Nixon to resign. Mm -hmm. That was something, if the Democrats really wanted impeachment and conviction, that's the approach they would have followed. But, they, sir, I understand your argument, but that's like saying you've already said that it was a fair case against him and that it is a peachable offense. All you're saying is that today's Republican Party, far from being not being invited into a bipartisan process, are merely so toxic and so partisan that even though they know he is guilty, they will not do what's best for the American people. No, I, I think it was the Democrats who created this scenario. They, they wanted to hurry so that the impeachment process did not affect the Democratic presidential nomination. I agree with you there. I agree with you. That was a mistake. Okay, but, but, but that is a political consideration. I understand what they were saying, but they were using a governmental power, probably the House of Representatives' most important governmental power, the power of impeachment, and they torqued it around their own political interests. Doesn't that sound a lot like Donald Trump to you? Uh, but theirs is constitutionally mandated. His is for his own personal benefit. He was There's using a difference. The secure, no, he was using the security assistance and torquing that around to demand that the Ukrainians launch a political investigation into his opponents. To benefit himself. For his political convenience. And what the right. Democrats were doing were worried about their own political convenience. This was a huge lost opportunity, which the Democrats caused it, it, on their may be, It may be, sir, but I think that's a false equivalency. Lost opportunity. Mm. See, from this whole thing where he talks and talks and talks, lost opportunity is exactly it. There's one lost opportunity that I was screaming at the top of my lungs about screaming at the top of my lungs about back in 2017 that no one paid attention to. I've been actually very busy aside from, you know, my own, you know, personal sphere because all of us have lives and we're struggling, uh, especially with this coronavirus. The one thing that I've been doing is taking a look into my state, taking a look into why is it that New York is seemingly the center of everything but not. Why is it that Cuomo has been live streamed constantly, being pushed as this great guy constantly? And then the other day, he tweeted a map showing that New York did the best job in coronavirus. Yeah, they did. They killed off a lot of old people, so many that we had to pass a bill. We actually had to pass a bill in the Senate to disallow, uh, you know, um, people being sent uh, to nursing homes. Take a listen. A bill aimed at keeping some of our state's most vulnerable people from being exposed to COVID-19 cleared a hurdle in the state Senate. Check out this chart from clickondetroit.com. 34% of all COVID-19 deaths in Michigan have come from inside nursing homes and long-term care facilities. And that bill would bar COVID-19 patients from being placed in Michigan nursing homes. Let's get to Larry Spruill. He's live tonight with what the governor is saying about all of this. Larry? Yeah, Kimberly and Devin, we talked for about 10 minutes and she tells me that she was simply following the science and the guidelines from both the CDC when this all first started. Now, it's true. The Senate did pass the bill earlier today, but the governor has the final say so. Heads to the House. And that chamber needs to go ahead and pass it. Michigan State Senator Peter Lucido tells me today is a good day. The Senate took a vote on Senate Bill 
956, which allowed COVID patients that are positive not to be put into nursing homes ever again with those that are non-COVID. Imagine a state like Michigan, their Senate, the state Senate there just passed a bill disallowing COVID patients to be transferred to nursing homes. And his Senate bill 956 passed through Michigan Senate with no problem. We needed this more than ever because of the following. We were having too many elderly, most vulnerable people get the disease, and die. That's why Senator Lucido says he had to fight Governor Gretchen Whitmer's original nursing home decision that allowed elderly patients with COVID-19 to live in the same facility as patients without COVID-19. Lucido says that just did not make sense. Let's be real, Larry. At the end of the day, I had two doctors testify before the Health Policy Committee, and they unequivocally said, this is not a standard of care that we could support. Thank you so much for taking time. Wednesday, I talked to Governor Whitmer via Zoom. What do you say to your critics that, that crit- criticize you on your nursing home with putting people who have disease and don't have disease in the same facility in the same nursing home? What do you say to those critics? Yeah, I would say, you know, we need to remember where we were 10 weeks ago when we were seeing exponential growth, where we had hospitals that were at capacity, where we only had enough PPE for a shift worth, um, that we were following the what what should be the gold standard, which is the CDC standard. And that's what that's what we were following at the time. And the governor says she was then and is now simply trying to keep everyone safe. And so I'm going to tell you how this is a win and it is a loss. So the state Senate said no longer can you place people sick with uh, COVID-19 into nursing homes. Agreed. Why would you do that? Your grandmother can get the regular flu, a cold and die because their systems are weakened. You know, the average amount of medications that someone at the age of 65 takes is at least three right? That's the average. Okay. So it'll be anything from one to 12. The majority of people that, uh, you know, that are in nursing homes are, uh, they have dependent care, meaning they take a lot of medications. There are blood thinners that have to be, uh, uh, looked at. So here's the thing. You're not going to throw in someone that can get, you know, a week, someone sick. That's just, a death sentence. Exactly what Cuomo was doing. And on ToriSays.com, I wrote an article on how not only was Cuomo, just like every other blue governor was, sending patients to nursing homes that had coronavirus, right? But he was sending them with body bags as they were coming in. So say I had coronavirus and they sent me to a nursing home, they'd send me with a couple body bags. And it was insane, right? Think about it. They knew it was a death sentence and they sent every patient with two to three body bags knowing that's how many people they're going to take out. So now that they're not allowed to go to nursing homes, where do they go? Oh, quarantine camps. Do you see where I'm going with this? So this is a win protecting our elderly, but it is a loss because now we're going to be creating quarantine camps. And those of those people that believe that their bodies are not temples and that they believe that they will die will be cheering for that. See, this is the beauty of how they reality hack your mind. This is it. 
This is exactly it. It's so incredible just how easy it is to see it. Let's be real. How many people do you know take power, like are elected in the Senate, Congress, state Senate, governors? How many of them do you believe attain that power with the intention to, in the future, relinquish it? Fast answer, zero. 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 None of them. And you know, until people become aware, awakened, and conscious of exactly what's going on, no one is going to stand up and say, all right, stop, stop, stop. We need to take a look at what's going on here. I'm not liking this. They will never, ever rebel as long as they're sleepwalking. Never. And only when you rebel against what they're telling you, only then, only when you put your foot down and say, nope, I'm not accepting this. Only then are you really awake. Only then. Slowly, you'll see in today's show just how important New York is. New York, when people would say, where are you from? Uh, New York City. The city or, yep, born and bred, Manhattanite, right? I always went to Queens, though, because that's where all the Greek people were, (laughs) you know? culture thing, right? Because it's not just black Americans that like to stay in their, in their little hubs. Italians do, Greeks do, the French do, the Polish do, right? Right. But yeah. And they would say, where are you from? Capital of the world. Pay attention. Very, very important statement there because we're seeing that as this uh, coronavirus, uh, you know, charade is going on, And the advocation of another shutdown, travel bans now. You know, the EU is imposing travel bans on the United States. How do I know? So a couple days ago, um, obviously, all you you all know that you know my my mother has cancer, so that's um, extremely stressful on all um, fields for anyone, right? especially when they're far away and can't come because they're vulnerable. They can't, she can't even travel now. Uh, the window of her traveling wasn't even feasible when it happened and the state department was helping out because, um, you know, she, she had just undergone a procedure and it wasn't something that she could do. So it's stressful on all facets. So now I was looking into how, you know, we can visit and do whatever. So I had a friend that was uh, flying out there and I wanted them to um, swing by and um, take her some things. And they said, hey, I got a call from my travel agency. And I was like, okay. And (laughs) so such a weird call. Uh, You do realize that I'm in the middle of X, Y, Z. Why are you calling? Well, I just wanted to tell you that Americans are not allowed to fly to Greece. I said, excuse me? 
they're calling everybody that had booked tickets for July and said, because of the new rise and the increased cases of coronavirus, uh, Americans are not allowed to travel there. I'm like, are you sure? I thought that ban was lifted, uh, you know, because there was like a demi ban. No, it's a ban. Now, this person that's traveling there is going, uh, you know, for uh, business and pleasure, right? Do I say that? It's like, yeah, it's 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 business. But, you know, pleasure because <laughs> they're going to hang out for a week. It's bizarre. Thinking that July and August are the highest and the peak season of tourism, which is the, the majority of where the income of all small businesses in Greece happen. You know, I have family members that own businesses that rely on this to think. A ban because of the increase in coronavirus. A ban that they're telling you is, uh, what is it, racist. I saw even an article talking about it on The Verge saying that President Trump, Russia, and Brazil didn't do what they had to do early on with coronavirus. And it's like, wait a minute. He stopped, he banned travel from China, where we knew it was coming from. Then he shut places down at the discretion of governors, depending on how it goes. And he didn't do enough. Like, what else was he supposed to do? What else was the president of the United States supposed to do? Let me guess. Start um, texting, like Germany did. Because I am still working on that um, story Believe it or not, before you leave your house, you had to text the government and get permission to go to the supermarket, see a relative, care for someone that needed caring, etc. Is that where we're going? Request permission to leave? Hmm. That and more right after this break. All right, welcome back. So, coronavirus. Coronavirus on everybody's mind. Coronavirus here and there. Coronavirus everywhere. We should make like Dr. Seuss stories about that. So, what is going on with coronavirus? Well, today, um, Secretary Azar made a statement about it. Take a listen. It's spreading rapidly in Dallas County. The data is clear. Our case numbers and our hospitalization numbers, which we've been tracking daily, are headed in the wrong direction. That is the mayor of Dallas talking about a sharp increase of coronavirus cases there. That's just one example of the bigger picture. The number of COVID-19 cases surging to more than 38,000 in America yesterday. That is a record daily high. It surpasses the previous record that was set two months ago. So it's time for our headliner, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar. Mr. Secretary, good morning. Welcome back. Great to be with you. Thank you. What's your plan? So we're working aggressively with states and local leaders uh, in this situation, but it's important for the American people to know this is a localized situation. The counties that are in hotspots are 3% of American counties. Now, that's not to minimize the situation. It's really important that we get to the bottom of why we're seeing the surge in cases. Now, some of it clearly has to do with increased testing. We've tested over 30 million people, 3.5 million just in the last week, and the average age of people testing positive is going down dramatically 
dramatically. That means we're capturing younger asymptomatic individuals, which is a sign of a very robust testing system that President Trump has delivered. But we also need to get to the bottom of why we're seeing such spreading. So we've deployed teams to the county level to work with local leaders and community leaders to figure out why we're seeing this kind of spreading. You know, Mr. Secretary, thanks for being here this morning. People want to know, first and foremost, if they're going to be safe, obviously. Um, But if they haven't returned to work, they certainly want to. If they're back at work, they want to stay there. And they want to know if their kids are going to go back to school in the fall. Do you see another shutdown happening? I don't, uh, although you'll see local community mitigation steps depending on circumstances. You know, as I said, the hotspots are in 3% of American counties. About 110 counties right now are the ones that we're focused on. We can get back to work, back to school, back to worship, and importantly, back to health care if we act responsibly as individuals, if we keep in mind what are our individual vulnerabilities. You know, most of the fatalities in severe cases are in individuals who are 80 years old or older, or 65 years of age and older with three comorbidities, such as diabetes, obesity, renal failure, lung or lung disease. Um, These are the people that have to be really protected, ring-fenced, protected. Um, The rest of us obviously should take sensible precautions. None of us want to get this disease, but we have to protect those individuals. We can get back to work. We can practice social distancing. We can wear face masks if we can't practice social distancing. But Mr. Secretary, we certainly appreciate you being here and you're talking to our viewers. You're trying to uh, get out there and be transparent with the na- with the nation. But you haven't had a coronavirus task force briefing in a long time, several weeks, as you know, from the White House. And at the beginning of this crisis, it was very important for the president, the vice president and yourself to deal directly with the American people. I've heard you now in this interview say it's a localized problem. To Sandra's question about schools, it's local. I get that that happens on the local level. But are you kind of farming this out now to local and state governments? No, not at all. But it's always a locally led, state supervised, federally supported process of responding. Um, And you've heard the president, the vice president, myself. Uh, We've got Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, Dr. Redfield. In fact, the four doctors just spent seven hours testifying before Congress this week. So we're out there. We're keeping the information flowing to the American people. And we're supporting our county and state leaders uh, to deal with this with transparent information and giving them the support that they need. There's a piece in the New York Times this morning, Trump's feeding America's coronavirus nightmare. Secretary Azar, I'll read it to you. We need a Churchill to lead our nation against a deadly challenge. Instead, we have a president who helps an enemy virus infiltrate our churches and homes. Churchill and Roosevelt work to deceive the enemy. That Trump is trying to deceive us. What do you say to that, that the president's leadership through all this and now talk of a potential second wave that we could be doing better How do you respond, Secretary Azar? Listen, these kind of partisan attacks are just completely irresponsible as we're in a pandemic. We're all working together. The president, the vice president, and I, we're working with governors and local leaders, regardless of party, to work for the benefit of the American people here. And thanks to the president's historic leadership, we have the tools to deal with this. We have surveillance. We've got historic testing systems. We've got containment at the local level. We have hospital system capacity and supplies for them. We're bringing therapeutics to market. We're developing vaccines at record speed. That's all thanks to the president's tremendous leadership pulling not just a whole of government approach, but a whole of the American economy approach together on Mm -hmm. this. He deserves credit for that, as well as the 
complete transparency that he and his administration have provided throughout this crisis. Mr. Secretary, we have got about 30 seconds, but on the vaccine question, you, you seem to be uh, showing some optimism. And Dr. Fauci and others said it's not a matter of, 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 of um, if, it's a matter of when, I guess is the way they were putting it, that they're very confident that at least early 2021 we're going to have a vaccine. How optimistic are you, sir? I am optimistic given the president's leadership here. We are devoting um, tremendous resources to ensure that we reduce any any unnecessary delay in developing a safe and effective vaccine. But also importantly, we're manufacturing hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine at risk so that they'll be ready if an FDA, if a, a vaccine is approved by the FDA. So tens of millions by this fall, hundreds of millions by early next year. Okay. Thank you for you your know, time. Secretary Azar, if I could just... Uh, a final thought on just the second wave. We're listening to you talk about the vaccine coming in January. Obviously, the flu season could come in. We all want to get our kids back to school safely. Um, do you see that second wave happening? What does that look like, Secretary Azar? So I don't think it's useful to talk about first wave, second wave. We just need to deal with the epidemiology on the ground. Right now, we've got 3% of counties that are presenting with rising cases, and we want to deal with them. And we use those six tools that I talked about, surveillance, testing, containment, health system resilience, therapeutics. We now have three therapeutics we're working with. We've now got uh, remdesivir. We have convalescent Mm. plasma. We have steroids, and we're going to keep bringing other products like monoclonal antibodies to market. So we can keep reducing our fatality rates. You know, any death is too many, but we now have fatalities in the United States for over 16 days below 1,000, and our rate of fatality per million puts us at the top tier of of developed countries around the world in terms of of performance there and protecting our vulnerable people. Okay. Secretary Azar, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we want to protect our vulnerable people. Excuse me. is spreading. COVID, COVID-19 is spreading and we want to protect our vulnerable people. The question is, are we doing the right things? Are we actually doing the right things? Are we protecting the people or not? Or are we causing them more harm? Now, I want you guys to know that uh, Governor Cuomo uh, has killed tens of thousands of people uh, by sending them into nursing homes. And the handling of the crisis has been a failure, yet for some reason, the global media is praising him. They are praising him. And people are saying, uh, well, the New York Post actually uh, published an article uh, yesterday claiming that he can't dodge the accountability for the nursing home deaths forever. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. And I'm going to tell you just how prepared they were for this. So... I want you to know that um, in 2016, while we were busy with elections, New York State's nursing homes had received atrocious reviews for years. And they suggested that the state-run nursing homes were getting worse. And what happened? The New York Attorney General's office in 2016 investigates, as always, crimes and civil cases relating to nursing home care. You know that, right? Now, I've just submitted this morning again another press request to find out how many complaints have been filed at Letitia's office in regards to civil claims or even criminal complaints 
uh, against, uh, you know, these nursing homes. Specifically in 2016, the concerns that they had uh, was that um, Medicaid fraud was happening. Basically, people would go to the state-run homes and there would be, you know, over 1,500 complaints a year for abuse or neglect right, in the state-run facilities. So what happened was is that studies were showing that for-profit nursing homes provided even lower quality of care compared to the non-profit or the government-owned ones, right? Because with the government-owned ones, they're supposed to be regulated. They're supposed to be viewed. Because the for-profit ones are all about cutting corners and maximizing their profit, right? New York State actually made a shift. Did you know that over 80% of the nursing homes in the state of New York are for-profit? I repeat, for-profit? So, you know, I don't know if anybody has ever been to a nursing home, worked for one. It's actually really busy. There's a lot to do because each person in there requires personalized care. So how do you cut costs the same way hospitals do? So I viewed that when I was a, a medical student. The, the, the university had two hospitals. They had Chandler Medical Hospital, which was top of the line, you know, schnazzy, you pay, we take insurance. And then the other hospital that was homeless people, Medicaid, and not so much. Uh, and I, uh, worked and shadowed and did most of my work at Good Samaritan, which was the nonprofit arm of the hugely profitable arm of the university. And I can tell you that, you know, there were nurses sometimes at the ICU that had four patients on their shift. That's a heavy load for an ICU for telemetry. Some of them would have five or six. They were over, how do you take care of five or six patients over an evening that have heart issues? Effectively, you really can't. So you rely on cutting costs. A nurse costs a lot more money than, I don't know, uh, a nurse's aide or CNA, as they say, right? So you would have a bunch of children or CNAs that were working toward their nursing degree or just wanted a job. That knew at most, and weren't really allowed to, but some of them do, take blood pressure and vitals with the automated stuff, right? But they were there to kind of bathe them, clean them, uh, take care of the patients, feed them, you know, mind them if they were harmed to themselves. Cutting corners. So in 2016, New York made that big shift. Big shift. To for profit. Now, you're going to say, well, Tori, this happens all the time. Mm, yes, but not in such huge numbers. I want you guys to listen to this short snippet between the two brother Cuomos. Take a listen to this. I'm wowed by what you did. And more importantly, I'm wowed by how you did it. This was very hard. I know it's not over, but 
Obviously, I love you as a brother. Obviously, I'll never be objective. Obviously, I think you're the best politician in the country. Um, but I hope you feel good about what you did for your people because I know they appreciate it. Nothing's perfect. You'll have your critics. Thank you. But I've never seen anything like what you did. Thank and you. that's why I'm so happy to have had you on the show. Um, so here we go. Fake interview, right? Fake interview. Thousands of deaths have been, you know, accounted for in New York City, yet New York City is setting the gold standard on this. Cuomo was pushing to prosecute against people that were reopening their businesses so they can feed themselves. Threatened that bars and restaurants are going to lose their licenses. Anyone that has a drink sitting on the street because you're not allowed to congregate inside is going to be fined. And police and protesters that aren't masked or aren't masked will be fined too. And that he was demanding that the local government enforce those laws immediately. And the violation complaints are predominantly from Manhattan, he said, and the Hamptons. <laughs> you mean where us most privileged supposedly are, right? So there has been an initiative at the beginning of the month where healthnewyork.gov uh, has a program addressing complaints and conditions in nursing homes. So people were like, hey, uh, you know, you can um, be a volunteer to address these. You can sign up. The question is, why is it going through an obdinsman and who's really doing it, right? If they're volunteers. Well, I'm going to remind you something. I told you that I heard the conversation between Berman and Letitia James, the New York Attorney General. What's going to be coming out of New York in the next 60 days and this article, I'm still waiting to get permission because I really want to release that audio, you guys, uh, is going to be huge. I just want to remind you who this AG is. I say one, I say one name, Donald Trump. That should motivate you. Get off your ass and vote. Will you, will you sue him for us? Oh, we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the ass. I know my name personally. I love it. He probably does already. That was Letitia James saying that if you vote for her, she is going to be suing him and she's going to be a pain in his butt. And she ran for AG and won saying that. Keep in mind, the most dangerous place to live now in America is in a state that's run by Democrat <laughs> or a city like, you know, Mayor Beetlejuice, Mayor de Blasio, which, uh, speaking of New York, we need to speak about his wife's billions of dollars that are missing. These are all connected. The coronavirus, the money missing, the for-profit nursing homes. Because you have to ask yourself, why the nursing homes? Who owns the majority of the for-profit nursing homes. Why did Cuomo send them to nursing homes? Oh, wait a minute. And there's a pattern. Everywhere they were sending people to nursing homes. Guess what? For-profit. You know, we have uh, 
a record this year on crime, a record positive rating on crime this year, the best. And you hear about certain places like Chicago and you hear about what's going on in Detroit and other other cities, all Democrat run. Every one of them is Democrat run. 20 out of 20, 20 worst, the 20 most dangerous are Democrat run. We have uh, one city or two cities in particular, worse than Honduras, worse than Afghanistan, worse than Afghanistan. Uh, and these are cities within the United States, Democrat run, radical left run. You see what's going on in Seattle. You see what's going on in other places. Seattle of all places. Who would even think that's possible? 20 out of 20. The Democrats uh, want to weaken very substantially our law enforcement and our police. And frankly, they want to defund largely, at least largely. Uh, there are some that want to defund and abolish our police, if you can believe that. Uh, and uh, we're not letting that happen. So the most dangerous cities... Not only for your your ability to survive and walk down the street and not get shot or killed because, I don't know, maybe you're the wrong color or maybe you didn't apologize fast enough. This is a civil war. I don't think anyone's realizing it. It's just a lot more civilized. Just a lot more civilized. You know, the attorney general had come out over... Who two months ago and said, oh, we received many complaints about nursing home facilities, including the Isabella. We are actively investigating these complaints and remain concerned about fatality rates, treatment and infection rates. Yet they're still allowing the governor to do this. So I guess those people are that of a lesser God. Nobody cares. The United Nations are doing exactly what they should be doing to complete the circle. Should I say that? They pushed this virus. They made it happen. And now they want to issue penalties for those that are not abiding by it. It's, it's really incredible what we're seeing. You know what sucks? Is that most of the people that are, you know, looking at this happening, they have to make a choice between freedom and comfort or what makes them happy. Unfortunately, for the majority of the people out there, they think being comfortable right now or happy right now is more important than freedom. And this is where we're at. The instant gratification generation. Hmm. This is how they break everyone. Instant gratification or instant safety. Well, we're going to throw all these people to the side uh, because we're not supposed to be, uh, you know, we shouldn't be worried about walking out on the street and getting sick. Okay. We need to focus on the people that are alive. So let's focus there. And this is what we're going to do. In the meantime, you know, we have uh, the, the EU. There's an international travel ban. Listen to this. This is rise here in Florida. You, you saw travel to the Northeast has become extremely complicated. But what about international travel? The European Union is getting ready to reopen. And Hatzel Vela is live at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport 
with more. Hatzel. Janice, if you're thinking about traveling internationally, you may have to postpone for the following two reasons. Go to the Miami Passport Agency and you'll find this, a sign that tells you they're closed unless you have urgent international travel. Because of COVID-19, the State Department says they significantly reduced passport operations back in March. They go on to say, we temporarily suspended expedited passport processing and restricted service to cases involving life or death emergencies. As global conditions evolve and U.S. states begin to reopen, we are resuming operations in phases. As of Friday, 15 passport agencies around the country have moved into phase one. Miami, though, is not one of them. Phase one would allow some passport agency employees to return to the agencies and start processing the older applications. To give you a sense of what's happening, between June 11th and 17th, the State Department received 120,000 passport applications. They issued 154,000. But a little more than 1.7 million Americans were still waiting to get their passports. Delays will continue because State Department staff cannot process applications at home because of security and privacy issues. In the coming weeks, they will aggressively tackle applications that were put on hold because of the pandemic and provide fast and efficient service for Americans that they rightfully expect. But passports may not be the only obstacle for those who want to travel to Europe. According to the New York Times, the European Union may block Americans from traveling there because of the high number of COVID cases in the U.S. A decision is expected before July 1st when the EU expects to reopen. Yeah, but they already made that decision, calling people, telling them that they need to, uh, you know, uh, reconsider their trip. European Union, the EU, is considering a new travel ban on America, a ban on Americans traveling to Europe in response to coronavirus cases. Fox Medical contributor Dr. Mark Siegel joins us with the latest on this. Doctor, thanks for coming on. Hi, Tucker. Let's take this back to March 11th, when Italy passed 10,000 cases. And in the United States here, we had 1,100 confirmed cases. And President Trump issued that travel ban where he basically said 26 countries stretching from Iceland to Greece, you couldn't travel to to hear from Europe. And that was the responsible thing, but apparently he didn't do enough. So after the break, we'll pick this up and uh, talk about other stuff. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. I'm your host, Tory. So I want to talk about the EU considering blocking people from the U.S. Uh, from traveling uh, to Europe uh, because I think it's very important. So it's important on many fronts. You know, <laughs> we're going to listen to CNN's version too. Okay, just just take a listen. You couldn't travel to to hear from Europe. And you know what the European Union did? They were horrified. They called President Trump irresponsible. But looking backward, we see actually that most of our cases, at least on the East Coast, came here from Europe because they were receiving cases from China and then on into the United States. 
Look today at June 23rd when we have 2.4 million cases and Italy has one-tenth of that. Now the European Union is getting ready to reopen their borders. Guess who may not be on the list? The United States. Guess who is on the list, Tucker? China. And the European Union is calling our handling of the coronavirus a failure. Well, maybe it's a failure because when we thought we had 1,100 cases, we probably had over a million or at least several hundred thousand by that point. Now, you could make a case for this being public health on the part of the European Union. They're saying that if you live in a state or a region where there's less than 50 cases per 100,000 people, maybe then you could travel to the European Union. Maybe then you could travel to Europe. Well, let's see now. Montana, South Dakota, Wyoming, you're in. New York, Texas, Arizona, California, you, you're out. So I think that this will have a huge impact on our economy. And I'm actually wondering whether this could have something to do with President Trump this week saying that foreign workers with visas are not allowed into the country. Could this be retaliatory? Possibly. Could it be public health? Whatever it is, it's, it's not the tone they sounded back in March when they were horrified at our travel ban at a time when thousands and thousands of cases were coming here. So I have a message for the European Union tonight. How about remembering what we did for you in the middle of the 20th century? Tucker? Yeah, I think that's worth reminding. This is global power politics at work, as always, under the masquerade of public health. Dr. Siegel, thanks so much for explaining that. Good to see you tonight. Thank you. Exactly three weeks ago today. Okay, now let's listen to the CNN version of this. In the coronavirus pandemic, CNN is learning that the European Union could bar Americans from entering its member countries because of the high coronavirus case count in the U.S. Joining me now to discuss this is CNN's Kylie Atwood, Fred Pleitkin, and national security analyst Juliet Kayyem. I mean, Kylie, this is sort of a, this is a referendum that they're even considering this. It's a referendum on how the virus is taking over the United States. Yeah, it's really a reflection of a reality, if you think about it, Brianna. What I'm being told by EU diplomats is that as the EU prepares to open its borders to international travelers, it's considering not allowing American travelers back into the EU. Now, that is uh, very, uh, very big news because it's going to allow travelers from other countries to come to the EU, but the criteria for which it determines which countries uh, are allowed to allow their travelers to come in to the EU, I'm being told, is based on how many cases, the, so the source of the coronavirus cases in those countries. And so because there is a surge in the United States right now, the EU is considering keeping American travelers out of the EU when they allow other international travelers to come into the country. Now, they're also considering a number of other countries whose visitors would not be allowed into the EU. And we are expected uh, to hear a final decision on this early next week week ahead of the July 1st deadline. And, and Fred, you're there in Berlin. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, I, th I certainly think that that uh, is something that could happen, that the U.S. travelers could still be uh, barred from entering the European Union. I mean, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that when the European Union opens, first of all, it's every member state's own thing, uh, which people from which countries it lets in. But of course, the EU is going to want to do all of this on a European level. They want to see uh, to be having a common approach. And that's something that they've done in the past as well. And certainly, 
the thing that they are going to look at is how strong the virus is in a lot of these countries. In the end, the science in the EU here is what it comes down to. What they usually do do is they will give preferential treatment to countries that are affiliated with the European Union. Like, for instance, right now, travelers from the United Kingdom are being let uh, into the European Union. Uh, and, for instance, also uh, from, from Norway and some other countries. So even some countries that are not necessarily part of that Schengen area, of that common European free travel area, are allowed in. However, Brianna, one of the things that I have heard from many German officials over the past months that we've been dealing with this coronavirus uh, crisis is they haven't been uh, uh, very impressed at the way that the Trump administration has been dealing. The Germans don't like it. Are you listening? Uh, with the coronavirus crisis. In fact, it was a top German official uh, who a while back ago said, look, here in Germany, of course, Germany has done very well, uh, by and large, in dealing with the crisis. We can be very happy that we don't have a situation like in the United States, where there's a lot of German politicians who believe that the crisis is not fully under control in the United States. Of course, that's also something that plays into these decisions as well. If you look at Germany, for instance, it is probably the European country that is most similar to the U.S. as far as politically structured, also a lot of strong federalism. And Angela Merkel's government has been seen as being very, very strong in dealing with state governors, working with state governors to try and get this uh, uh, crisis under control, get the pandemic under control. And German politicians have been looking to the United States and saying they haven't seen that same level of cooperation from the Trump administration. Yeah, they haven't seen what? Now, let me tell you something. How do they... Uh, quantify success because none of the nations out there are really uh, saying the truth in the numbers. We know that we've conflated our numbers. The numbers are fake. I told you that back in March. Now we're seeing it. So what is it that quantifies or qualifies a nation of being successful? The success is quantified by the obedience of the citizens. Are they all wearing masks? Do we have enough Karens? Are people staying at home? Are they sending text messages to the government when they travel? The obedience score, that's what it is. This is how you know you've successfully contained coronavirus is how, how obedient your people are. I repeat, how obedient that is how they quantify the success. Think of that while you listen to this continuation. To the extent that you've seen it here in Germany, Brianna. Yeah, no, we just heard, Fred, from one of the uh, major experts on vaccines who said it almost appears like the U.S. at this point has kind of given up on really managing coronavirus when you look at the moves the administration is taking. Juliet, when you look at what the EU is discussing here. The New York Times is reporting that the U.S. would be lumped in with, for instance, Brazil and Russia. And then it says that European nations are currently haggling over two potential lists of acceptable visitors based on how countries are basically doing with the coronavirus. Both include China as well as developing nations like Uganda, Cuba and Vietnam. So what does that say about uh, how the U.S. is being perceived here in, in their response. So this is consistent with a number of actions that have been taken globally against the United States. So now we, we often talk about a wall here, sort of keeping people out. Uh, they are building a wall around us. Everything from 
uh, poultry uh, exports because of uh, the, the illnesses in our uh, in our supply chain for meat uh, to the cruise lines yesterday voluntarily said we're no longer going to come into U.S. ports for a couple months because they see our numbers uh, to now the EU. Uh, this is the summer of exclusion is, is how we have to think about it. The United States has failed uh, to effectively manage uh, the coronavirus. So let's think about it. We've failed, according to the Germans and the left and the globalists, right, to contain the coronavirus. And let's just keep in mind that the aim of these people, these globalists, these elitists, as they call themselves, is to conquer the whole planet and ensure that each and every one of us do not have the ability to think for ourselves. So those are the two things that they want world domination and to control your thoughts. Remember that as they continue, because what did we do? We stopped incoming travel. We killed our economy. We were locked in our own homes. Yet the numbers do not substantiate the response yet. We have failed. Why? Because we have more cases. Why? Because we have more testing. Why? Because we can't. And just because you tested that you may have had it doesn't mean you were going to die. Doesn't mean you were going to give it. Doesn't mean anything like that. But regardless, according to their statistics, globally, there have only been 9 million cases. And in the United States, there have been 2.3 million. Are you getting this? So we have failed, apparently. We have completely failed, apparently. Oh, by the way, only 473,000 have died globally. If you believe that, you believe everything. And the rest of the country, uh, the rest of the world sees that, but in particular, uh, parts of the world that have managed to not only flatten the curve, but to get way down on that slope as they anticipate a potential second wave. So for Europe, they know it's not over, but what they can do is manage the risk between now and say October, if there is a second wave, the United States as a whole, every single citizen now is seen as a potential risk factor. Um, and so it is completely, I will say this, rational for the EU to exclude us at this stage, given our numbers. I'm not happy about it, but we would do the same if we saw those EU numbers looking like ours and ours were in a better place. Um, it's just the nature of a global pandemic. Uh, you have to make these border decisions uh, based on science. And our science is showing half of the states are still in the first wave and heading up. That is not the EU's fault. I think that's the yeah. fault of, of management by the White House. Let's get some fast reaction. Elizabeth Cohen is our CNN senior medical correspondent. And Aaron Bromage is a CNN contributor and biology professor and immunology specialist at UMass Dartmouth. And so, Elizabeth, first to you again, not a done deal, but just given the surge in, in coronavirus cases here in the U.S., it, would this be warranted? You know, you have to understand why they're considering it, Brooke. I mean, we are one of the hotspots. It does make sense. They're trying to protect their own countries. And I think that this is really a sad testimony to the job that this country has done, the United States has done in bringing coronavirus under control. I mean, look, back in January, when this was all hitting, the U.S. had the same opportunities as other countries to get things under control. And other countries simply did better. Their numbers came down. Ours 
have not been coming down. And it's sad that we're in this situation right now. Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we were very quick to close our borders and we saw what happened with the U.S. being peppered with new infections from Europe. Um, it goes back the other way. We did not handle our business here. And because we didn't do that, um, we now get put in a timeout until we can get things under control. Oh, we get put into timeout until things are under control. Do you see it? Do you see how the mainstream media has one simple goal? And that is to uh, create boundaries of where people are allowed to think. And, you know, this is it. And this is how you see on social media only. It doesn't apply to mainstream media at all. It just applies to anyone that's outside mainstream media and using social media or the Internet in general. But in the end, as we see, it's all about, you know, thought crimes. I mean, Laura Loomer's been banned from everywhere. Alex Jones been banned from Every single place, including the Internet, right? He had to have his own servers to move things because, yeah, you know, um, thought crimes are the problem. And you're not allowed to speak truth. Speak truth. You're not allowed to. I mean, soon it'll be such where they will tell you that the sky is green and everyone will tell you that and you will instinctively say, yes, it's green. Is that what you want? Because that's one of the realities. That's at a 42% right now. That's at a 42%. That jumped from yesterday. What changed? Well, tomorrow we'll talk about what changed. Even though we had victories, I want to savor that for a little bit. Something changed. Something changed and, you know, again, no one takes power with the intent to let it go. Remember that. Now they want to put us in timeout. Let me go back to the president of the United States, seemingly at odds. You just heard the sound right from Capitol Hill today, seemingly at odds with top health officials about the the ongoing threat for for both of you. And then, Professor, I'll come back to you. What do you make of all this? I, sorry. I think this is, this is an important... Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Go ahead. You take it. Go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, I think that this, is, that this is an important moment when we look at what the president has said about the um, that things are dying out, that that just isn't the case. Things are not dying out. The situation is getting worse, and he needs to start being honest about that. You know, listening to Dr. Fauci's testimony today, Aaron, this is for you. You know, he testified that he's never seen a single virus with such a wide range of symptoms as we've seen with COVID-19. And that, you know, some people may wonder why they should be concerned if they don't have more serious symptoms. And so just with that in mind, and as you see more and more Americans hanging out, gathering over the summer, many of whom not wearing masks, not observing social distancing, what concerns you the most? It's just we've had our focus on the people that are older with comorbidities and we've seen the devastating effect the virus has had on them. We took our eyes off what's happening to the younger people and I'm seeing pediatricians banging the drum talking about what they're seeing in children. We saw the double lung transplant in a 20-year-old this past week. Um, We really don't know what the long-term effects on the health of younger people who may show milder disease, um, but we don't know what the longer term effects are going to be on lung function, neurological function. There's just so much that we don't know. Um, We're guessing right now. 
President so I want you guys to know that Google, Facebook, and Twitter have been working with the EU government to block negative comments in respect to that. It started with, you know, uh, Muslim migrants, but it's evolved, obviously, right? You know, when we saw in 2016 and 2015, a bunch of cars being blown up uh, from these enraged migrants. That was actually put down, put down. It's down, 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 down. See, in 2018, it was very easy to see that Italy was going to be smacked by the globalist EU. We saw that. Salvini should have seen it coming that his nation was the one that was going to lead the way because it was written in the stars. Man, man, man. I can only say that this uh, progressive limitationist speech started with, you can't target radical Islamic terrorists. You can't target people that are blowing stuff up. You can't target grooming gangs. You can't target rapes. You can't target criminals. You can't target those. Now, you can't target the truth. You're not allowed to speak the truth. It is disallowed on every single level. And you have to think, why is it disallowed on every single level? Why do they not want us talking about things that we care about on every single level. It's because they want things like this. Now, Seattle's mayor announcing the dismantling of the chop zone earlier this week. But guess what? Some protesters refusing to leave. As we're learning new information, many shop owners in that zone now plan to sue the city for abandoning their neighborhood. While one of the chop shooting victims is considering suing the police for not responding to him quickly enough. Let's bring in Dan Henninger. He's deputy editor for the Wall Street Journal editorial page, of course. Dan, good morning. Let me get this straight. Chop kicks the cops out. One of the chop folks gets shot. Now he wants to sue the police because somehow it's their fault for not helping him. Yeah, you can't make it up. But, you know, he's not really going to be able to sue the police. Uh, The police work for the city of Seattle, so the lawsuit would be directed at the city of Seattle, just as will be those lawsuits by business owners uh, for the failure to protect them. And I suspect the city of Seattle's got some problems here. Mm. Uh, People in cities uh, sue them all the time for broken curbs and the like. And in Seattle, it was literally a conscious failure to protect those businesses. And uh, I think the taxpayers of Seattle are going to end up indeed settling some Mm. lawsuits with uh, business owners in CHOP uh, who were not protected. Now, I want to say something like we said this anyway on the Tories that show that you pay taxes, you expect them to protect you. But why is it that we're having this civil unrest? You have to remember that President Trump said that Obama may have committed treason. We already knew he did. It was already being discussed. But what you have to remember is that they are pushing and causing social and civil unrest. Why? With violence. Why? To respond to that. Listen carefully. This is why this is happening. So every single one of them, every single politician, including that of Seattle, and every other mayor and governor across the nation that is allowing this violence to continue, 
They will be seen as enemy combatants and they were aiding in sedition and they will also be taken care of in the same way. Remember that. That is exactly what happens. Want the killing to stop? That's what they're saying. Want the killing to stop? They said that 62,000 white people shoot black people and, you know, and, and that's a big number as compared to 320,000, right? Black people that kill white people. This is, this is where they're putting it. This is, these are numbers that I'm telling you from 2014, 2015. Police killings of blacks down 70% in the last 50 years. Mm. In 2012, 123 blacks were killed by police with a gun. In 2012, 326 whites were killed by police with a gun. Hmm. In 2013, blacks committed 5,375 murders. In 2013... 4,396 murders were done by white people. Whites are 63% of the population. Blacks are 13%. These are statistics. You have to understand that this was planned civil unrest. This was purposely done at the time of killing the economy because treason is on the lips of our administration. It's to push false narratives to create a division between the people to make you scared of your neighbor. And that way they can inflame and push and, and insinuate emotional reactions from the masses that are half asleep. That's what this is all about. It is important that we realize it. You know, in 2015, and this is why I say my New York pieces, there's, there's three of them. And I'm going to drop all three the same day. There was a meeting between de Blasio and George Soros. I'm going to say this again. There was a meeting between de Blasio and George Soros. Remember, Soros paid over $30 million to fund the protests In Ferguson, I want you to remember that in Ferguson and they had a nice little meeting in 2015. So you're going to realize just how planned all of this is slowly, but surely it'll come to fruition and it is coming to the surface and you'll be able to see it as clear as day, as clear as day, because they're not going to get away with it. We are 20 million steps ahead right now. 20 million steps ahead. Hmm. If only everybody could wake up at the same time, right? If only everybody can see what you see, what I see. Right now we see people sparking around taking an oath. An oath? Remember the episode where I read the oath? Do you remember that? This is over a year ago where I told you about the oath that foreigners take when they become citizens. That is the obligation of every citizen in the United States of America. Now, I took my oath in 1995 on foreign soil at a base. And it was one of the most proudest moments I ever had 
in my life just to utter them out loud with witnesses. All right, welcome back, everyone, to the Tory Says Show. So we've been talking about coronavirus and hoaxes and banning, et cetera, right? And I want to take you where I wanted to take you. So I want you to remember 2021, the 54th day of the year. So that would be 45 reversed, right? I want you to remember that day. It'll be the day that people realize that we've had everything we needed from the beginning. Now, I've told you many, many times why North Korea was the first thing that President Trump went and did and executed and was adamant about. And John Bolton was upset that he was sending him a CD with Rocket Man, right? I want you guys to remember that because here's where I'm going to let you in on a little secret. And uh, it's more of a reminder. So right around the time that the president of the United States, well, okay, let's do it this way. Four years ago. Nope. It was five years ago. Five years ago, shy a week, a man was able to escape North Korea. That man ran away. He ran, ran, ran. And he supposedly ended up in Europe specifically Finland, that President Trump didn't know if they belonged to Russia. Hmm? Oh, I didn't know they belonged to Russia. That was a very important statement John Bolton made. So this man runs away and reportedly goes to Finland. He defected. Guess what he had with him? Tons and tons and tons of data. Data that he stole about human experiments. Did you know that? His name, all they're telling us was his name was Lee. We know his name. There was a U.S. Committee of Human Rights that actually, uh, uh, in North Korea, that told uh, the Finnish newspaper uh, that reported this defection from this guy arriving there that, um, yeah, his story is pretty plausible. And the U.S., the, the director of the U.S. Committee for Human Rights in North Korea said, well, we've been told similar, listen to this, stories. In the past, the human experience experiments are carried out in prison camps. And then he said, oh, yeah, and it might involve chemical weapons. 
Now, Finland. Is that part of Russia? Mm-hmm. North Korea was the first thing we went for. Right? And let's remember that in the summer of 2018, Obama's CDC director was actually arrested in Brooklyn, New York, facing charges of sex abuse. Hmm. So that story went dead real quick because there's no documentation in regards to that story. But what I can tell you is that someone Frieden was with knew about this information, knew about this information that came into the hands of Finland, who doesn't belong to Russia, right? So you just have to wonder. So he went from North Korea to defect in Finland. Mm? Just remember the 54th day of this new year that is coming. And you will see how everything falls into place. That is how you will see it. That is how you will see it. Remember Trish Reagan, who was um, fired for coronavirus, for saying that the coronavirus came from China? Why hasn't she been rehired since it's been proven to be so? Oh, we don't want to do that, do we? Hmm? We don't want to do that. Well, it seems that treason, that is uh, coming up really, really quickly, right? Treason, treason on the lips of almost everyone is going to be pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. Because we're seeing that the majority of these people that are pushing for their position to stay where it is have been constantly receiving money from Islamic groups that are linked with Hamas, right? That are linked with Al-Qaeda, right? That are obviously funded also by George Soros, right? Pretty interesting. Barack Hussein Obama is going to be charged with treason. And they know it. And this is why we have civil unrest right now. This is why they are doing this. There is a movement, a huge movement to overthrow President Trump. Because he is taking them all down. Every single one of them. You know, I've said this many, many times before. How many of you believe everything you see on the internet? How many of you believe the scandals that they tell you about of their camp, right? Is actually true. Did you know that the majority of the Chinese deals were done during the Clinton administration? Did you know that the majority of the sellout of our nation to China 
was done through President, impeached President Bill Clinton is a rapist. Did you know that? But digression. This is where the truth is going to start shining. This is where you're going to see every little trickle of information that you've seen go by your screen. Everything that made you go, hmm, will start to come into focus. Chop will come into focus. Listen carefully to this report on how people are upset. Yeah, you make a really interesting point there, and I want to read from what these small businesses who have been caught in the middle of this, the mayor failing to do anything, uh, the CHOP members just deciding they're going to take over these few blocks. Their lawsuit, the small business owner says, this lawsuit is about the constitutional and other legal rights of plaintiffs, which have been overrun by the city of Seattle's unprecedented decision to abandon and close off an entire city neighborhood, leaving it unchecked by the police, unserved by fire and emergency health services, and inaccessible to the public at large. So these small business owners, some of them, we've reported on this, have had to hire private security, because guess what? They didn't have the police. And beyond that, in this lawsuit, if it ever gets to court, Dan, I wonder if the mayor's comments about, oh, it's going to be a block party, it's going to be the summer of love, that could be important information for a judge to consider. I agree with that. I mean, there's a short phrase to describe everything you were just talking about there, Ed. It's called the rule of law. The rule of law actually means something. It means laws exist, they're on the books, they are enforced, and people can appeal to them when they have grievances. And in this case, the people of Seattle and other cities do have grievances against uh, the people, uh, the mayors and the police departments running those cities for Uh, a failure to protect them, to carry out their obligations. And I think there are going to be lawsuits of that sort. I mean, what we saw on the streets was an act of lawlessness, uh, really an ideology of lawlessness. Mm -hmm. And they may assert that, but I think a lot of these cities are going to pay the price in the future for having failed to carry out their responsibilities to protect private property. Failed to carry out their responsibilities. Obviously, you're not just referring to Seattle. You see statues coming down. You see very few Democratic mayors and governors, if at all. I guess the Wisconsin governor was look, uh, you know, calling in the National Guard last night. There's rare exceptions where Democratic politicians are stepping up. You write, we shouldn't really be surprised by this in the Wall Street Journal this morning. How did the capitulation happen so fast? In fact, it was a long time coming. The activists' steady descent into irrational, illogical claims It was impossible to miss. It became obvious that wokeness had turned into a weapon, but liberal leadership blandly let it happen. Wokeness as a weapon. Yeah, well, people, I think, are stunned, Ed, at how fast this has happened in the past four weeks. The pulling down of monuments to presidents like George Washington, Jefferson, Ulysses S. Grant. They can't imagine where this came from. Well, it happened over the past 30 years. It started on the campuses when they enforced and instituted speech codes, which forbade a certain amount of words to be said by people. University presidents were complicit in that. Then they denied tenure to conservative professors who were kind of ballast against groupthink. And then when the students started to attack their own liberal professors as racists, the universities stood aside, as did their liberal colleagues, and let that happen too. That were the seeds of cancel culture. That was the seeds of the irrational anti-history that we're seeing right now. People in positions, liberals in positions of leadership 
in our institutions stood by and let that happen. And now the progressives that are saying, you work for us. Get out of the way, Joe Biden. Get out of the way, Nancy Pelosi. We're taking over. And people like Nancy Pelosi are basically saying, no problem. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Bob Johnson, very wise man, the founder of BET, first black billionaire. He told uh, Fox News Digital, the people who are basically tearing down statues, trying to make a statement, are basically borderline anarchists. So there are some people. Borderline, you mean they are. So now I'm going to take you back in time. To a time uh, six or so years ago where someone I know got in a lot of trouble. And something that's not different. So there was a um, meeting in Beijing back in 2014 uh, that you can look up. It was around this time. It was around July. See, all this, the most corruption, the most deals that they close is on the seventh month of the year. The month that comes right after the first half. And during this uh meeting. At that time, Chinese premier, uh, it was uh, Lee Kuaikang, right? Merkel referred to finding out that John Brennan was looking to see what uh, they were up to, getting in some intelligence from Germany. And so, of course, that was a discussion that Angela Merkel had with uh, the Chinese. They suspected, I'm I'm just going to tell you what they suspected, that um, they had a um, person working in Germany's Federal Intelligence Service, BND, that's what they call it, who was first detained and questioned for possibly coming into communication with Russian intelligence assets. But their own German Federal Intelligence Service agent admitted to working with Americans. Now, the story went out really loud. And Brennan actually had a brief Congress, few members of Congress, of course, because that would threaten the relationships between the U.S. and Germany. Brennan supposedly briefed these lawmakers, but nobody knows when or why. And the CIA has declined to comment on it at all. Ever since then, when it came out, Germany had put out the federal prosecutor, Germany had put out a statement saying that this guy was 31 years old. He's actually older and was arrested uh, for being a foreign spy. Now, what they were upset about is that this uh, federal German federal intelligence agent passed information on to the United States of America. Now, what was this information that was passed on? Mm. It was called insurance. 
So what this guy received was information that was perceived at first to be seen as working with Russians. John Brennan loves doing that. You know, using people and saying they're Russian. And puts it down to provide it, uh, you know. Ugh. Now, what people need to understand is after Snowden, what he did, which was he did the job he was assigned to do by Brennan, by hijacking the NSA and twinning the streams, by providing such access to these private institutions. He supposedly revealed that the NSA was targeting Ms. Merkel and her personal cell phone. And then Obama came out and said, oh, well, we agreed to stop targeting her. But there was no such thing called a no spy pact. Yeah, we're not going to tell you if we're going to spy on you or not. They don't have to. They already have it on tap. And China and everybody else and their mother, thanks to Snowden, who so nicely hopped around the world telling people everything that they've been doing, supposedly, while ensuring that everything he needed to be done was done. Good guy, bad guy. Well, he soon realized that he was playing for the wrong team, I'm pretty sure. Right, Edward? But I want you guys to remember that Brennan had obtained an immense amount of of blackmail. And the thing about these older, more seasoned, you know, leaders that have been placed where they've been placed is that they don't like the youngins to come in and tell them what to do. No, no, no. How dare you? But see, this is how you can realize that the greedy, power hungry, deep state cabal that exists also has inbred fighting. Okay. This is what, this is where they're fighting between themselves too. Cause it's all about power and power comes again from dominating the world at physically, but also thought now in Europe, your Facebook, your Twitter, everything is censored and monitored. Even your website. Those of you that own websites of your own, like I do, there are certain stipulations for people accessing it from the EU that you must abide by. I don't abide by anything. If they want to ban my site from there, I'm fine with it too. And another revelation, something that I told you about before, that Facebook it talks about political censorship. This is thought control. Take a listen to the new expose from Veritas. Facebook favors the left. They do, 100%. We work with a lot of liberals. Yeah. I'll go in there with a MAGA shirt or a MAGA hat, I'd get my ass beat. So I saw some discrepancies. I saw some, some evidence of bias. You're saying because he's a white male. Oh, it's, it's easier when they're white men. Okay. No one has the white men's back anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we bring the game to it could work on the left side. I saw more blatant posts against Trump. But Facebook obviously hates Trump. Yes, it, yes 100%. They, they, they do. I saw an alarming number of posts that really focused on conservatives. Uh, kind of a double standard. So I've spent quite a bit of time looking at pictures of 
hate organizations, Hitler, Nazis, MAGA, mm-hmm. you know, Proud Boys, all that stuff, all day long. Our latest Facebook insider, Zachary McElroy, exposed the pervasive anti-conservative bias inside Facebook. Today, another Facebook insider, Ryan Hartwig from Phoenix, Arizona, comes forward and he says the anti-conservative bias is pervasive. Tell us your name and where you worked. So my name is Ryan Hartwig and I work as, a, or as of a couple weeks ago, I worked as a uh, subcontractor for Facebook uh, for Cognizant in Phoenix, Arizona. So I was a content moderator uh, for Facebook, essentially. And um, why did you decide to come to Project Veritas? I, I think I thought people deserved to know what was going on. So seeing just such blatant bias from from Facebook just really just really bothered me. Other than, other than your personal experiences, you felt there was an institutional bias that you say was aggressive in, in Facebook. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. So um, when I started in March of 2018, I saw more blatant posts against Trump. So I saw an alarming number of posts that really focused on conservatives, uh, kind of a double standard. There's like six people who decide the policy for all of Facebook, and they all think the same. They're very like-minded. So, I mean, how do you, if you live in, in San Francisco, that's not, you're not going not to find a, a sample population that's diverse in their political viewpoints. We bring the game to it could work on the left side. Yes. But the how? left side. How? Yeah, how? Freedom of speech is the main one. So like they're allowing political ads still. Yes. So now they can get more exposure to the left versus the right. 100%. Yes. But Facebook obviously hates Yes, yes, 100%. They, they, they do. And then, um, but yeah, we've been getting a lot of, con- getting a lot of content about it. I've got, I had like at least 10 jobs today. Bunch of sh- Rednecks threatening Hartwig was not surprised when content moderators at Facebook that he worked with grouped average Joe Trump supporters with terrorists. Uh, the next clip was captured by uh, a hidden camera. This is of Steve Grimmett, team lead for content review. I mean, I guess maybe that's part of your part of your. <laughs> Your job description is looking for red flags, mm-hmm. but you know, <laughs> right. I, sometimes I, they're better than others. One of my projects before now was was hate, uh, so I've spent quite a bit of time looking at pictures of hate organizations, Hitler, Nazis, MAGA, mm-hmm. you know, Proud Boys, all that stuff, all day long. Does it surprise you that he combines Hitler, Nazis, and MAGA? Uh, he's describing hate organizations. He's moderating for Facebook. He kind of throws MAGA in there. What is your reaction to that? So yeah, he groups together hate organizations: Hitler, Nazis, MAGA. So that's kind of how the moderators are conditioned to think. Like, hey, anything that's right wing, hey, it could it could possibly be on a hate list. So there's no left leaning individuals on that list. So the policy is called dangerous organization, dangerous individuals and organizations. So in that same list, there's also terrorists or the moderators that that were 
doing this moderation? You mentioned Broward was a Sanders supporter. Mm -hmm. How about the people that were making the choices on whether to take something down or not? What were their politics like? So I remember one individual named Cassie who sat kind of behind me to one side. And uh, we had a few conversations about politics. And in one occasion, she, um, this is uh, during the Iran, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a bounty was placed on Trump's head from Iran. So they offered $80 million to anyone who would kill President Trump. And Cassie was talking about how she would accept that bounty and that it would be, you know, it would be worth it. I hope he reported that to Secret Service. Now, uh, the video has been released uh, by uh, Project Veritas. I believe it is our duty and it is important to listen to what he brings to the table. And from these brave people that are coming out, remember, behind every strong leader, there are a bunch of people you don't know about that helped in that war, that opened the door, that gave them food, that gave them water and shelter. We're all part of this. No to the thought police. God bless. I'll see you tomorrow.